everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. Just the world we live in these days, with all the screens, sounds, lifestyle choices, night shifts, remote working, it can cause absolute havoc on our body clock and overall wellness. And it was in fact all the myths and misguided information out there, such as eight hours a night of sleep is imperative, or reading your Kindle before bed will prevent sleep, or you need to buy these expensive glasses to block out certain lights, which inspired today's guest to pen a book, dispelling these confusing messages while sharing more helpful, applicable facts to put you on a path to better sleep, better health, and better brain power. Professor Russell Foster is an award-winning British neuroscientist and author who studies how circadian rhythms and sleep are generated and regulated and what happens when these systems fail across the health spectrum. Circadian rhythms are physical, mental and behavioural changes that follow a 24-hour cycle. The term circadian comes from the Latin phrase circa diem, which means around a day. So when we're talking about our circadian clock, in simpler terms, we might also call it our body clock. Russell Foster is head of the Newfield Laboratory of Ophthalmology, the founding director of the Sleep and Circadian Research Institute, a fellow of the Royal Society and the Academy of Medical Sciences, and was awarded a CBE in 2015. I found Professor Foster so interesting to talk to. It's a really interesting way of looking at how our behaviour in the day impacts how we sleep at night and vice versa. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome Professor Russell Foster to the Happier Life Project. Today we're learning about the importance of our circadian clock and what to do if it's out of whack, basically. I made so many notes and questions prior to reading your book, which is called Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and health. And... I guess I'm kind of glad I did, but then when I was, I was like, well, you answer a lot of these already, but clearly I'm on the right track in terms of hopefully in the conversation today, I'm addressing things that people are concerned with. But before we get into that, I'm very, very curious how this has become so much of your life's work and why you are so passionate in this field of study. Well, first of all, really great to join you, Gabby. Mm. My background is that I've always been fascinated with biology. You know, my earliest memory is looking at a lizard on a rock, you know, um, (laughs) where where I grew up. And my degree, my undergraduate degree was zoology. I I just sort of had this very comparative approach and still absolutely fascinated by animal life in whatever context. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people watching all the David Attenborough movies out there you know, watching birds. So I still love it. But 
With my PhD, it was uh, much more sort of centered on the neurosciences. And the primary focus has been how is light used by our internal timing systems? So that the internal day, and we'll talk about those circadian rhythms, I'm sure, in a moment, mm. and the external day are aligned. And the classic sort of mismatch is jet lag. So what is it about light that's so important to our internal clocks? And and really, it, this interest led to the discovery of another light sensing system within the eye. I mean, completely unexpected. And, mm. and the sort of the most recent work we've been doing is understanding how that light is then uh, interacting with the biological clock in the brain. And indeed, that understanding is forming the basis for drugs, which we can use for people, for example, who are profoundly blind. So I work with Blind Veterans UK. So wow. these individuals you know, have radically damaged eyes. And of course, their biological clock is ticking, but it's no longer synchronized to the outside world. So for these individuals and other groups, it's like unremitting jet lag for the rest of their lives. And so what we are on the verge of doing is providing a drug Preclinical work has been done and we've done first in human. And now we're we're looking to go to first clinical trials where we can essentially give back a sense of time to those individuals who are not only visually blind, but they're also time blind. It sort of emphasizes the importance of, of the eye. But from that wow. basis, that's going to be life changing. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it is very exciting, but but really from that sort of core, it's extended to all of the field of sleep and circadian rhythms and, and the formation of this institute in Oxford, the Sleep mm. and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, where we cover everything from fundamental mechanisms to how sleep and circadian rhythms are falling apart across the health spectrum, importantly, what we can do about them in terms of sort of interventions. And then finally, getting this message out to the broadest community. So we have the first fully online master's degree in sleep medicine, where healthcare professionals can log on and take this course. And we now have people from all over the world uh, learning about this area of, of biomedicine. So I feel a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. I come in every day and there's something new, there's <laughs> something exciting in my field. And of course, it's it's very broad, which which is kind of, I suppose, goes back to my zoological roots. I, I love <laughs> I love the breadth of the topic. Oh, wow. I love that. So interesting. And I could veer off, but I'm going to stick to setting up this conversation properly for any listeners that are unsure about what is the circadian clock which, you know, I guess we could also call the body clock. Yeah, yeah let's start there. Well, I suppose in, in broad terms, you can think of the body clock and our circadian rhythms as being an internal representation of a day. We really do have a clock which is ticking away with a period of about 24 hours. It's a bit longer in most of us under constant conditions, which is why you need to see the light-dark cycle every day to align to entrain the internal clock to the external world. Now, mm. now, there is a master clock within the brain. So if you imagine where sort of the bridge of your nose going in and where the optic nerves go into the brain and fuse, there's a small structure called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's only about 50,000 cells. And what's turned out to be extraordinary is that just one of those cells has the capacity to generate a 24-hour oscillation, a circadian rhythm. And the mechanism is one of the great success stories, I think, in neuroscience. And of course, uh, the Nobel Prize in 2017 was awarded to the individuals 
who discovered how the clock ticks, actually not in us, but in the fruit fly. And what's turned out to be extraordinary is, is that the fundamental mechanisms of the clock in a fruit fly are broadly similar in us. Anyway, you've got this bunch of clock genes which are activated. They encode and they generate the production of a bunch of proteins. Those proteins then form a complex, go into the nucleus of the cell and turn off the, the genes. The proteins are then degraded and then the whole cycle can start again. So you have essentially a feedback loop of protein production and degradation. And that's the heart of the molecular clockwork. And we used to think that this SDN, this master clock, would force rhythmicity on the rest of the body. But the really, again, I think incredibly exciting observation is, is that every cell in the body, to some degree, has the capacity to generate a 24-hour oscillation. So you've got this incredible hierarchy. You've got the eye regulating the master clock in the brain, and then the master clock, the SCN, sending out signals to the entire body to billions and bi billions of individual clock cells in the organ systems of the body are coordinating their rhythmic activity. And essentially every aspect of our biology, whether it's hormone release, whether it's our changes in mood, whether it's our uh, you know, muscle efficiency, core body temperature, you name it, is being uh, regulated by a clock. Now, why do we need it? Well, if we think about it, we sit on a world that revolves once every 24 hours. And that's profoundly different. There's, there's of course, light and dark and, and temperature. And we need to adapt to these different demands of the Earth rotating on its axis. And in fact, almost all life has evolved a, a response, has some sort of biological clock which can anticipate that dawn is coming. And then for us, increase metabolic rate, increase heart rate. And so we're ready for action. And then towards the end of the day, there's a switch into the sleep state, which is lower metabolic rate, but lots of, of really cool stuff going on whilst we're asleep. So it's this amazing adaptive internal driver that's regulating everything about us. Wow. So is that why when I, you hear the term circadian rhythms, it's within it? Because I was like, is it rhythm? Is it do we have one or rhythms as in there's more than one? But from what you're saying, it sounds like there's different rhythms depending on what we're talking about within the body. Yeah. Um, so, so essentially, all of those rhythms should be appropriately coordinated. So it's a bit like an orchestra. You've got this master clock in the brain, mm. the suprachiasmatic nuclei, which is a bit like the, the conductor producing a rhythmic signal from which all the component parts of the orchestra, the body, take a reference cue and then align their activity uh, appropriately. And of course, if you don't have a beautiful sort of coordination between the master clock and all those peripheral clocks, you get internal desynchrony. And it would be the analogy of, of all the orchestra playing at a slightly different time. And instead of a symphony, you'd have a cacophony. Right. And actually, it, it, it's a, it's a, an analogy that works very well, because uh, if you're not doing the right thing at the right time, then our biology breaks down pretty rapidly. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, our biology, you know, what we need is the right stuff at the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And you can think of our circadian system as being this master coordinator that's allowing us to do the right stuff at the right time. Wow. So what if you've got like one of your instruments out of whack, like say you've got a piano player like Les Dawson, <laughs> then, 
<laughs> Does that mean the rest goes out of whack as well? Or can you like work on one thing versus the other? <laughs> I'm trying to get my head around it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, you, you can have the rogue fiddle player, for example. Um, and that can either be corrected, you know, somebody can tap him on the shoulder and say, you know, start playing appropriately. Uh, and that will be because of communication with other clocks throughout the body. Or it may actually start a cascade of events where the whole of the of the of the of the symphony falls apart. And that's very common in many diseases. So, for example, uh, in illness such as infection or in mental health uh, issues or other sort of states, you can get a breakdown in this beautiful coordination of activity and you can't do the right stuff at the right time. I mean. One interesting area, of course, is in intensive care, where there's no proper light-dark cycle, there's lots of disturbance. And what seems to be happening is that in these very vulnerable individuals, the whole of the one's biology is beginning to drift apart. And there's some suggestion, and the, and the data are still being collected, that if you impose a strong light-dark cycle in intensive care, then recovery times are more efficient. So it really emphasizes the importance, again, of doing the right stuff at the right time. So in your opinion, then, what does a healthy sleep-wake cycle look like? You know, there's, you've got pe some people that can just spring out of bed and they're like ready to take on the day. And then you've got others that, you know, have to literally drag themselves up and it's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> well, you raise a really good point, Gabby. And it's part of the reason I wanted to write like lifetime because I was being increasingly irritated by the sort of sergeant majors of sleep in every sort of newspaper or whatever screaming you must do this and you must do that you know mm -hmm. the, the, the most frequently heard mantra is you must get eight hours of sleep mm -hmm. well that's not true it's an average and it's perhaps a useful average to think about but some people are you know the normal range uh, you can get by perfectly happily on six hours for some people, and some people may need 10 and a half, 11 hours. So the key thing is each of us needs to work out what our optimum sleep-wake timing, when we want to get up and when we want to go to bed, our mm. chronotype and our sleep duration is. And it's not rocket science. It's the sort of thing that perhaps our grandparents would have told you. You know, How do you know if you're not getting enough sleep? Well, the first is, are you functioning optimally during the day? Do you feel as though you're firing on all cylinders? Mm -hmm. If you are, you probably have the sleep that you need. Do you need an alarm clock or a partner to wake you up in the morning? Do you oversleep extensively on free days such as the weekend, and particularly when you go on holiday? Does it take you a long time to wake up? Do you feel groggy, as you were saying, mm -hmm. you know, when you first sort of the alarm clock has woken you up? Do you feel sleepy, irritable, and fatigued when you are awake? Um, do you crave a nap during the day? Do you do stupid and unreflective things? Are you impulsive? You know, I think I can make that red traffic light. And whereas normally you wouldn't, you know, you just wouldn't even think about it. Mm. Uh, if you're craving caffeinated and sugar-rich drinks. And critically, you need to listen to friendly family, friends, and colleagues if they say your behavior's a bit odd you know you're a bit more irritable you don't show the same empathy and you're doing sort of again unreflective and disinhibited things these are all telling you you're not getting the sleep that you need and it may be timing it may be that you're an early type and you do need to go to bed early and you'll get up early but for most of us we tend to be late types so mm -hmm. we're going to bed late 
but then we need to get up for work and so our nighttime sleep is shortened and we're not getting the sleep that we actually need that's more of a of a tricky one to correct but there are lots of things that we can do so uh yeah it's very important to appreciate that we are all different one shoe size does not fit all same for sleep and our circadian rhythms and we need to find out what works best for us and then embrace it mm. i'm curious to know what you think about I think it was maybe a few years ago, pre-pandemic, there was this trend to find out your chronotype and it was this, the lion, yeah. the bear, the wolf, and there's it dolphin. <laughs> this was in my notes to ask you about, actually, in terms of, yeah. is that just another one of those quizzes? Because <laughs> there's a lot of quizzes oh, to like, I, find this yeah. and find this. And so the chronotype is the natural inclination of your body to sleep at a certain time. So, yes. yeah, these four animals that uh, are in this yeah. quiz, what do you think about it? Yeah, I really don't like that classification at all. I, I think it can be deeply confusing because, for example, you know, dolphins, they have an incredible unihemispheric sleep. You know, when they're swimming along, one half of the brain could be asleep and the other half can be awake. And I was thinking when I first had this term, well, well how the heck does that relate to humans? So I, I stick to the old, the old terms of, of a lark a morning type, um, a, a dove for the middle, and then a uh, middle type, which is where 65% of us are, and an owl for the evening types. But the important thing is there is a variation in our chronotype, and it's dependent upon three critical factors. Uh, first of all, our genetics. Mm. Uh, so we now know some of those circadian genes subtle changes in those genes can actually shift you to a morning person or an evening person. By their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed to some degree. Mm. But there's two other really important factors. One is how old we are. So from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. And this peaks in women at about 19 and a half and men at about 21. And then there's a slow move to want to go to bed uh, a bit earlier and get up a bit earlier. So the time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed at about the time you got up and went to bed when you were 10, 11 years of, of age. But it's important to appreciate that on average, you know, uh, that sort of 60 year old will want to go to bed about two hours earlier than somebody in their late teens and early 20s. So it's a big effect. And it seems to be driven by the hormonal changes that are occurring across puberty, that sharp rise from about 10 into the into the late teens, early 20s. And then the change in those hormones as, as we age into maturity. So you've got genetics, you've got age, probably almost certainly influenced by our hormonal changes. But the third, which is the one we can modify, is when we see light. So morning light advances the clock. It makes us get up earlier and go to bed earlier. But dusk light delays the clock and makes us want to go to bed later and get up later. And we did a study on university students all around the world a few years ago, showing that the many of the students were missing the morning light which would, of course, make them get up mm. earlier. But they were out later in the day and late afternoon and early evening light. And that was pushing the clock later in time. Mm. And so if we don't get a symmetrical exposure to morning and evening, we can be, be shifted. So the good news is, of course, if you're a late type and you want to become more of a morning type, 
You set the alarm, you get up, you either get outside if it's bright outside, if it's winter time, you can sit in front of a light box, you know, for half an hour, and that will advance the clock. Mm -hmm. So there's three factors, genetics, our age, and when we see light. Morning light advances, dusk light delays the clock. You mustn't be a fan of blackout blinds then. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, I think they can be incredibly important. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I think particularly if there's street lighting, because there's, there's you know, we've talked uh, about the, mm. of, the, of the light shifting the clock, but mm. also light will have a direct effect on the alerting systems within the brain. And so for many people, street light can be a massive distraction. And so, yes, night, night, night blinds, I think, can, can be really important, both for uh, children and adults. But then you're not waking up naturally, I suppose, when the sun rises, are you? That's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. Yes. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, because as the wind, as the seasons expand and contract, then, of course, naturally, the clock would would also expand and contract with those seasons and keep us um, suitably a adjusted. But, you know, in the summer months, when it can be light very early, way before we need to get out of bed, then I think the use of blackout curtains can be useful. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that when we're all agricultural workers and in 1800, essentially 95% of the population did work outside um, and we were being adjusted. And, it, and there's some good studies suggesting that as the seasons expand and contract, our sleep changed over the seasons. You know, when we're agricultural workers, we need to get up with the dawn, get out there, get the harvest in, do all that kind of stuff. And in the winter months with the long nights, we sort of hunkered down and, and had a, an extended sleep period. So again, fantastic adaptive biology to the mm. to the waxing of the waning seasons so then in order to optimize our biological clock can we shift our chronotype in terms of like what if we want to be an early bird but we are more of a night owl is that harmful yeah a little bit a little bit uh, okay. no i don't think it's harmful i think that you know as long as you know, basically your genetics and, and and your age is going to be an important driver but you mm. can nudge that by getting right light at the right time so you know for example people uh, who are morning types who are getting up really early and want to go to bed really early they can actually become more later types by actually missing the morning light you know wearing sunglasses in the morning and then getting out and getting that afternoon early evening light and that will shift the clock to a later time most people of course it's struggling to get out of bed in the morning so it's it's actually getting morning light exposure that is yeah. that is the most appropriate for most of us. The impact of sleep or lack of on our mental health, as you know, the podcast is part of a mental health and wellness app. And and it has been proven time and time again that with a lot of mental health illnesses, people that do suffer are not sleeping well. So the two seem to go hand in hand a little bit. I don't know what your thoughts and observations have been there. Oh, well, this is something that um, I got into some quite some time ago and I was I was in a lift in a hospital and I wouldn't I won't name the hospital but this psychiatrist turned to me and said oh you work on sleep and stuff don't you and I said well yeah and he said oh well you know um my patients and he worked with on individuals with the diagnosis of schizophrenia um he said they have terrible sleep that's because they don't have a job so they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic and don't have friends. And I thought that was so stupid. That encouraged me to get some real data. Mm. So we worked with a psychiatrist, um, Eileen Joyce, 
and on her patients. And we looked at the sleep-wake profiles of individuals with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, age-matched unemployed, and age-matched individuals with no uh, diagnosis of a mental illness. And what was so just still breathtaking is the level of sleep-wake disruption you saw in those individuals with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And this sort of triggered a an idea about, well, what's the connection? Why do you have this? And of course, as as you've sort of already said, in in depression, you know, you get a change in the sleep prior to any, you know, clinical diagnosis of depression. We've worked on bipolar. And and again, uh, those those young people who are at risk of developing bipolar before any clinical diagnosis are showing altered patterns of sleep. So we began to think about, well, what's going on here? And we suggested that because the sleep-wake systems depend upon all of the brain neurotransmitters, then if you have a change in a a brain neurotransmitter that predisposes you to a mental health issue, you're almost certainly going to have an impact upon sleep at some level. So at the core, there's a mechanistic overlap in the circuits that drive normal mental health and normal sleep. And if there's a distortion in in that, then you're going to have a symmetrical effect. Mm. And what's turned out to be fascinating is that we identified genes that have been linked to human mental health issues that have now been shown to play a role in sleep-wake regulation. And fascinating, some of the genes and proteins involved in sleep-wake regulation are also linked to mental health issues. So there's there is that mechanistic overlap at the beginning, but it's more complicated mm. than that. Because of course, once you start to have a, a, a change in your sleep and circadian profiles, that can have a distorting effect and can exacerbate the mental health state, make it worse. And of course, the mental health state can then feed back and make the sleep worse. So you can start with a sort of a core, which is not great, but then Mm -hmm. it can rapidly turn into a worse and worse state of mental health because you've got this positive feedback loop, the the sleep making the the mental health worse and the mental health making the Mm -hmm. sleep worse. Now, the key thing, of course, uh, and and we we, um, suggested that, okay, if you can partially stabilize sleep-wake in individuals, and this is a study, an individual showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, can you, by stabilizing sleep, reduce the symptoms. And uh, a psychiatrist, uh, Dan Freeman, uh, here in Oxford, led that study. And absolutely, even if you can partially stabilize sleep, you could actually reduce the severity of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And that was the first major trial in this area. And I think what it shows us, and as you've said, Gabby, you know, there is an important connection. How can we use it? And by protecting and guarding and enhancing our sleep and circadian biology, we can actually use it as a therapeutic intervention in mental illness. I think it's really exciting because, Mm. you know, we don't have too much in that arsenal, but I think we've now got an exciting new limb to help consolidate. The the other interesting studies, which weren't done by us, looked at depression Mm. and the consolidation of the sleep-wake profile using light. And light, which was 30 minutes of 10,000 lux, so bright light first thing in the morning, was shown to be more effective than Prozac. 
at reducing levels of depression. So I do think we've got some exciting opportunities. And I, I think psychiatry is also now paying real attention to sleep as not only a marker of ill health, mm -hmm. uh, ill, you know, poor mental health, but as a, as a target which has been ignored. I mean, you know, back to the times of Kraepelin, you know, in the 1880s, he was talking about poor sleep in mental illness, but it was disregarded for so long. You know, in the 70s, with the introduction of the antipsychotics, uh, for example, it was assumed that it was the antipsychotics causing the problem, even though, mm -hmm. you know, there were reports 100 years before saying there was sleep-wake disruption. So I think that the view of, of sleep disruption is changing very rapidly in psychiatry, very much for mm -hmm. the benefit as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So for anybody listening who maybe is on some form of medication for a mental health illness or problem, and, you know, I think a lot of people are on things now for anxiety, for example, and um, being anxious, yes. even the anticipation of going to bed, people can dread it, can't they? Because they're like, am I going to sleep? Or, and it just adds, it all fans the well, flames. Uh, Gabby, you're completely right. And, and I think actually most people don't have a sleep problem they have an anxiety or a stress issue. And that's why it's so important to, to deal with anxiety. You know, at the end of the day, de-stress, whatever it takes. It may be going to the gym, it may be, you know, sitting outside, it may be listening to music, but it's so important to get that anxiety and, and stress uh, uh, under control. And I think, again, part of the reason for writing Lifetime was, you know, people were coming up to me prior to um, uh, lockdown. And in fact, just a few instances over the past few weeks. And one, one chap came up to me and said, um, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? You know, <laughs> incredibly anxious about it. And I said, well, well, yes, I can guarantee you're going to die. But it may have nothing to do with the amount of sleep you're getting. And, you know, I think the, the, these um, sleep apps can actually be rather more harmful than beneficial in the sense that they are inaccurate. They're not mm -hmm. Uh, endorsed by any of the sleep federations. They're not FDA approved. And they will say you've had a great night of sleep or you've had a poor night's sleep or, or you haven't had a, any slow wave sleep or REM sleep and all this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and they are profoundly inaccurate in that regard. And again, somebody else came up to me and said, do, you know, do you believe in slow wave sleep? And I said, well, yes. And they said, well, I don't because I'm not getting any. And in fact, I'm so anxious. I, I set my alarm clock for three o'clock in the morning to check on my app how much slow wavelength, wavelength sleep I've, I've actually had. And this is crazy. I mean, you know, uh, and so I think there's an awful lot of sleep anxiety out there. Mm. And it's so important to, to appreciate that, you know, a few nights of bad sleep, it's not going to be the end of the world. You know, your sleep is going to be, very, it's very dynamic. It's highly variable. And as long as, broadly speaking, you're getting the sleep that you need mm. and you're able to function during the day, don't worry about it. Mm. And your body is great at giving you the signs, right, to look out for. And to, well, it's just how you feel in terms of getting enough sleep. I'm glad you brought up the sleep app thing because I was curious what you thought because this is exactly why I've never done. There's the watch, isn't there? I think there's a ring now. There's all these different gadgets that can track your sleep. And I've heard lots of people say they use them and talk about them on pod other podcasts and that kind of thing. And I've always been like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because for me, that would be like weighing myself every day. You know, you just don't want to become obsessed with it. Well, that's right. And, and I think if they were broadly accurate, then there may be some reason to do it. So, you know, using the weighing yourself analogy, if you want to lose weight, 
you change your eating behavior, you weigh yourself in the morning and you see you've lost weight and that can reinforce your change behavior. So in that sense, it can be useful. And what the apps are useful for is showing you when you, roughly when you went to sleep, how long you've slept, whether you woke up in the middle of the night and when you woke up in the morning. And that can be useful because if you don't feel you're getting enough sleep um, and you can change your behavior and then your app can say, yeah, you had an extra 20 minutes or something. And so that sort of can reinforce your, your behavior. But broadly speaking, I certainly don't use one and none of the team here in Oxford are, are, are fans of them. And as I say, they're not endorsed by the sleep societies at all. Moving, I guess, from mental health more towards emotional health. So yeah. I'm curious to know, as we store memories and process emotions when we're asleep, why do we get so emotional when we don't get enough sleep? Oh, that's such a great question. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've touched upon uh, slow waves sleep and REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And we don't fully understand actually what's going on. It looks like non-REM sleep, you know, the deep slow wave sleep may be for memory consolidation and the manipulation of, of information. And REM sleep has been associated with emotional processing. So for example, people who've been selectively deprived of REM sleep show greater levels of anxiety and have a, a lower threshold for, for stress. It's also interesting that REM sleep is when we have our vivid and most explicit uh, dreams. And it's been argued that this is, you know, our dreams to some extent can reflect our, our emotional um, status. And support for this came from studies after the Twin Towers. So when the Twin Towers were destroyed by um, terrorist action, New Yorkers were asked about their dream content. And it wasn't seeing planes crashing into buildings, which have been, you know, post-traumatic shock. What their dream content was, anxiety uh, feelings. So uh, worried about being mugged, worried about being overcome by a tsunami. And so I think there's some credence that, that, that part of our um, emotional uh, processing is going on during REM sleep. And, and of course, if we're not getting it, then we can become much more anxious. But actually, even short term loss of sleep can have a big impact upon you know, our, our, our emotional content. So fluctuations in mood, for example, we can increase levels of anxiety. We've got loss of empathy, which I think is very interesting. We fail to pick up the mm. sort of signals from others about their emotional status. We get frustrated. We do risk taking, you know, things that we would ne never do normally. We, 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 we sort of do stupid risk taking things. Yeah. Impulse um, spending. <laughs> yeah. oh, that might One be just me. So <laughs> 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 One thing that I think is so in in interesting is that some lovely studies have shown that the tired brain remembers negative experiences, but forgets the positive ones. So if you're tired, you know, you're basing your decisions upon this what's called negative salience. And so uh, that's, I think, an, another really. And of course, if you're uh, at risk of mental health issues, then that, you know, mm. focus on the negative will help you slide into a, into a more dangerous state, as it were. And of course, um, there's much more likely uh, use of, of, of caffeine as a stimulant and then alcohol as a sedative at night. And many people are locked into a, a stimulant sedative feedback loop. 
I was going to ask you about the alcohol thing in the evening because I know a lot of people do like to have a, a glass or two at night in terms of helping to yeah. soothe them. But then also you hear that alcohol isn't good. Um, I mean, we all know going on a bender oh. and then going to bed, you don't get good sleep. Yeah. But what what are your thoughts there? I know, my, like thinking of my mother, she likes to have a couple of gins before bed, especially if she's she's retired, but now she helps out in like a, a hotel. And so if she's working in the bar, for example, she comes home, that's how she winds down with a couple of, couple of gins. Yeah. I think many of us do. I mean, and after a stressful day, and the problem is, is when it becomes more than just, you know, one gin and tonic or a whiskey and soda or a glass of wine, and it becomes essentially a way to sedate yourself. Mm. And this is the problem because, you know, one needs to deal with anxiety at the end of the day and a glass of wine, uh, you know, as long as you're sort of not exceeding the, the recommended units is probably fine. Um, but it's where it becomes a real sort of you become dependent upon it. And the problem is these sedatives such as alcohol, but also sleeping tablets are sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. And so some of the important things going on within the brain whilst we sleep, formation of memory, the coming up with problem solving new ideas to complex problems can actually be inhibited by um, excessive alcohol or indeed uh, sleeping tablets. So mm. I think the first rule of thumb would be try not to have them and use other ways to relax. But I think it's something that we all face. And I think we know you, you just look at the empties at the end of the week and you think, my God, I've got to do something about this. And I, and I think it's worth paying real attention, particularly with alcohol, because it's yeah. not simply the impact upon your sleep and, and your disrupted sleep, but also the other health, other health issues that, that excessive alcohol can, can mm. is associated with. I'm curious, is the whole having a warm milk before bed, is that an old wives tale? Because I've stuck to that since being a kid and I do feel like it's very comforting, but I don't know if it has got any kind of you know, there, if there is any science behind it. Well, okay. Um, I don't, first of all, if it works, use it. And it's not, it's not going to harm you. Then I think anything, any wind down technique is useful. We do know that a drop in core body temperature is important for going to sleep. Uh, and if you block that drop in core body temperature, then it is more difficult to get to sleep. So what the warm milk could be doing is actually warming you up meaning that you're getting more blood flow to the hands and the feet, for example, and that will, will shunt heat from the core of the body to the periphery, and that might help in the, in the heat loss and going to sleep. Some people will have a, a warm bath, for example. That will dilate the blood vessels in the skin, and again, you're losing heat from, from the skin, as long as the bath isn't too hot. Now, I think it would be fascinating to look at the, uh, uh, using an infrared camera, on the impact of uh, a glass of warm milk. I suspect it's probably having a, a placebo comforting effect, but that doesn't matter. If it works, that's fine. So another another area which has been looked at with you know um, this in mind is, is using smells, you know, lavender or chamomile or something like that. And the evidence that that's actually changing our sleep physiology isn't really there yet. One or two papers that have emerged recently, but it's that association. This is, I'm now transitioning from the wake state to the sleep state. I've got my mm. warm milk. I've got mm. the lavender smell. <laughs> that's... I've got my wonderful food. Have you been creeping? <laughs> Have you been creeping? 
picking on me. You're literally talking about my bedtime routine. I've got my goose done. Hello. <laughs> I do. I light a lavender incense stick. I have my hot milk and then I put on the um, the brown noise, which I found is more yeah. soothing than white noise. And that for me signals it's like... It's better. And you're doing exactly the right thing. And I think so. And I, and I think it's great. It's what you should be doing. I mean, one thing that's quite important, I think, is many people talk about is that, yeah, sure, I can get off to sleep, but then I wake up. And waking up in the middle of the night is distressing for many people. The first point is that this sort of um, consolidated eight-hour sleep that we're all told to try and get is, again, a myth. In fact, human sleep, we know this from historical records. Uh, Roger Eckert has got a wonderful book all about the, you know, looking at the history of, of sleep in the pre-industrial era. And mm. many people described a first and a second sleep. There's a wonderful thing that Roger uses in his book about this French physician. Advises, he says, I think young couples should make love after their first sleep when they will be less tired and better at it. You know, so there's been discussions of waking up and going back to back to sleep um, yeah. throughout history. And when we are given the opportunity, um, Tom Weir, he put uh, individuals into 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness. So the opportunity to sleep expanded and it became biphasic, woke up. Uh, went back to sleep again, woke up, went back to sleep again, or polyphasic, which is multiple wakings and uh, returning to sleep. But many people don't know that this is the natural state. Humans are just like all other mammals who show this pattern of poly or biphasic sleep. We wake up thinking, oh my God, that's it. You know, I never get back to sleep again. I may as well start doing my emails and drinking coffee. You stay calm. If you do something that's relaxing, you may want to leave the bed. A few pages of Jane Austen. It isn't compulsory, but you know whatever whatever you find relaxing. I, for example, will often put on um, Radio Four Extra. Uh, and Melvin Bragg is in our time. I'm usually asleep within five minutes. I love the program, but I think I find it relaxing, and so I you know then get back to sleep. And then you know in the morning I, I listen to the stuff that I because I'd fallen asleep at night. So I think don't worry if you do wake up, you almost certainly will get back to sleep again. Mm. For me, because I have done two teacher training courses now in yoga, I actually went to India for nine weeks at the start of the year and um, learning the pranayama breath work for me has been a complete game changer. If I wake up in the night, I just do some belly breathing and that sends me right back. so important. <laughs> Yeah, because you've taken control and you haven't got stressed and anxious about it. So this is such such a great message, you know. And so many people, um, you know, are, are terrified of waking at night. And again, it's part of this whole sleep anxiety. Oh, my God, you know, mm. I get to sleep. But, you know, what happens if I wake at night? Well, it doesn't matter. You'll almost certainly get back to sleep. And, you know, your technique clearly works. Mm. What about catching up on sleep? You know, like if you've had a few nights... And sometimes it's not necessarily even, it might be self-inflicted, let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, you might have gone out for a late dinner one night, you might have had a night on the town the other night, or, or, or it might just be that you've had a couple of nights of bad sleep. Whatever the reason is, it's the weekend, you don't have to get up early for work the next day. A lot of people, if they can, mm. will treat themselves and they'll, I'm air quoting, catch up on sleep. Can we ever catch yeah. up on sleep that we've lost? Well, I think the occasional catch up on sleep is fine. I mean, you know, we all do it. I think the problem is where 
you are routinely oversleeping on free days such as the weekend because under those circumstances the data suggests you do not fully catch up so if you're chronically sleep deprived during the week you can't fully compensate for that by sleeping in a, on a Saturday or, or, or a Sunday morning so you know again be, be careful don't depend on it you know you really do need to try and have a regular sleep wake regime both on free days and work days but the occasional you know all nighter or no the hen party or whatever it may be mm. is fine and you shouldn't get too worried about it I, I know you know some commentators have said you know you've got to do it otherwise you're, you're heading for illness I think we could be a little bit you know we've got a, a dynamic flexible biology and occasionally I don't think it, it it's an issue where there is an issue and I I, I think we need to talk about is in adolescence. Oh, oh I should I should say the, the downside of oversleeping uh, on free days is you're not getting that morning light exposure, which is so important for, for setting the mm. clock. And so you could then drift to a later time. So on the Monday, you may want to get out of bed later because you haven't had the advancing morning light on, 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 the, on the Saturday and the Sunday. But I think adolescents are, are, are at a particular problem. Um, so many will have shortened sleep at night because of, of course, their body clock has shifted and they may well be doing social media in the early hours. And, and I should stress, it's not the light from the devices, which is what you'll read about. It's actually uh, the alerting effect that these devices have on the brain. So you're getting shortened nighttime sleep. Mm. You're struggling through the school day because you haven't had the sleep at night. You then get home from college or school, and then you have a long afternoon nap or sleep fairly close to bedtime. Mm -hmm. That pushes back the sleep pressure, making it more difficult to get to sleep that night. So you can fall into a trap of shorter night time sleep and longer daytime you know late daytime naps and, and for adolescents that's really not helpful at all for their health and education. Mm. I was going to ask you as well actually in terms of the like screen protectors we can get or you can buy the glasses that help shield you from what is the harmful light is that just marketing is that is there any merit to these devices? So the work that we've done has shown that these special photoreceptors, these special light sensors in the eye regulating the clock and alertness and the sleep-wake cycle are maximally sensitive to blue light. But that doesn't mean that other colors won't be effective. It's like a bell-shaped curve. They will peak in the blue part of the spectrum, but if the light is bright enough, they can absorb you know, even shorter, you know, bluer light and, and longer green and, and red light. So there's nothing magical, particularly about blue light. The other really important thing is, is that these receptors need quite a bit of light for a long exposure. Now, there's again confusion out there because, yes, you can get a mild effect on one sleep wake timing by getting low lights in the early evening. But to get an effect, you need exposures of six and a half hours or so. So this system is constantly integrating light intensity, light duration, and the color or the wavelength of light. Broadly speaking, we are insensitive to light in terms of our circadian system. So most light in the evening will only have a very mild effect uh, on our clock. It will have an effect. But if it's on the sort of 100 lux or so or less, you can probably, you know, forget it. The amount of light you get from a Kindle is about 30 lux. Mm. 
Um, and there was a study a few years ago which uh, got people to look at a Kindle for four hours on its brightest light setting on five consecutive light nights. And what that did was delay sleep onset just statistically by almost 10 minutes. And that's, as, as one of my colleagues said, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. But that was then interpreted as, you know, looking at a Kindle before you go to bed will disrupt your sleep-wake cycle. It, broadly speaking, will not. So yeah. I think it, it's sensible to minimise light exposure before you go to bed and, it, you know, keep the bedroom dark. But I think we can, you know, if, if it, reading a Kindle is good because it's your, your novel and, and it's, you find that relaxing, I, again, wouldn't worry about it too much. There's a lot of debate about this mm -hmm. and there's no overall consensus. Uh, but I don't think the arguments have been particularly um, uh, sensible in some sectors. So these screen shifters, I was looking at the literature just recently, there's no really good data suggesting they have any effect whatsoever. As long as, it, you know, relatively dim light from these screens isn't going to have much of an effect and shifting from a blue to a red is not going to have much of an effect at all. And mm -hmm. that's what the latest data suggests. Screen use, computer use, gaming, uh, uh, social media. Yes, it will impact on sleep if it increases levels of alertness. And that's the issue, I think, for most teenagers. It's not the light from the screens. It's the alerting effect and the almost addictive effect that yeah. social media can have on on the young and some of us who are not so young. Yeah, it's the it's the stimulation, I suppose. Okay, yeah, I think we should talk about the impact of stress on our circadian rhythms. And I love the quote you used in the book from Oscar Wilde. Life is a nightmare that prevents one from sleeping. <laughs> it's great. I mean, yeah, genius. But whether it's the type of stress that's brought on by things like jet lag or shift work, or it's more of the emotional, mental stress from worries and from pressures, have you discovered any ways that we can sort of give ourselves the best shot in terms of like switching off when it comes to our body clock? Well, I think we've, we've touched on it. And I have to say, I when I first heard about mindfulness, I, I was quite rude about it. You know, I had it in the same <laughs> box as, you know, crystal waving. Um, and then I looked at the data and, you know, it's actually a very powerful relaxation technique for some people to wind down and get better sleep. I mean, people, you know, th there are data showing that mindfulness uh, in the in in the, in the in late afternoon and evening will improve sleep. And I think that's very important. But it really is horses for courses. It depends upon you and what you find a relaxing aid. It may well be exercise or, or, or going to the gym or, or swimming. One thing you have to be slightly careful about exercise uh, too close to bedtime is if it raises core body temperature, uh, it's a bit more difficult to get to sleep. So, so be careful it's not too close to bedtime. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's whatever whatever relaxation technique you know works for you. And don't be afraid to stick to it. I think many people feel as though I'm being oversensitive. I'm being silly about it. Not at all. I think you know if it works, you know, be, the, the quality of our day day activities is defined by the quality of our sleep mm. we pay you know so much attention to when we're awake and we need to pay equal attention to getting the sleep that we need mm. so whatever relaxation technique works for you mm. and certainly i don't read scientific papers in bed uh, i try and shut down earlier in the evening sometimes it's it's a problem but i don't try and get the the brain 
squaring before I go to bed. Mm, maybe don't watch a politics show <laughs> if it's going to wind you <laughs> up. <laughs> I do, well, do you know, it's very interesting. But you raise actually a very serious point. I mean, I've and, and I know many other people who do this. They don't watch the 10 o'clock news anymore because mm. it's just too stressful. And one, one family rule we have, is that we never discuss family finances uh, before bedtime. And of course, it's tricky because that's often when many couples actually have the, the time in the day to discuss serious issues. Mm. But I think it's counterproductive. Try and find a time in the morning um, or at the weekend, uh, but not close to bedtime to discuss those sorts of mm. difficult emotional issues. So then in terms of regulating our body clock, what have you found to be a couple of the most useful ways of doing that you've you've talked quite a bit about natural light i'm wondering we don't unfortunately have the luxury for many of being outdoors as much as i think a lot of people would no. like <laughs> these days if we're not in an office then we're working remotely and yeah, yeah i mean i could go down a whole other spiel about time zones now we don't even need to be in the same time zone we can be working in a different time zone and the havoc that wreaks yeah. so yeah, what have you found to be uh, a couple of effective ways? Well, certainly morning light is, is critically important in setting the body clock. That's that's great. And also, um, the morning light will have a, a big effect on lowering vulnerability to depression. So I think that's, that's one key thing mm. you can do during the day. We've talked about avoiding, you know, uh, alcohol, but also av avoid caffeinated drinks and sugar-rich drinks. Uh, late in the day. I, I tend to have a rule of not drinking caffeine after two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Caffeine can last in the body for really quite some time. It has what's called a half-life of five to nine hours, depending upon who you are. So if you're drinking coffee into the late afternoon, it will, for some people, have a big effect at delaying sleep. So so again, minimize those, those caffeinated drinks. Mm -hmm. We've talked about stepping back, de-stressing, uh, before bed, I think it's important to reduce the light level, not because it's going to shift the clock very much, but it also the greater the light, the greater the levels of alertness. And you want to you want to sort of minimize it. It's, it's ironic, I think, that um, one of the last things we do before we go to bed is stand in the most brightly lit room in the house, which is the bathroom, mm. looking into an illuminated mirror. And I'm amazed that nobody has developed a, a bathroom mirror with a morning bright light setting and an evening dim light setting. That that would make yeah, sense. Yeah, you should copyright that one there. <laughs> <laughs> so the bedroom also, make sure it's not too warm. Many people, you know, have overheated bedrooms. And it's also tricky because men and women have slightly different uh, temperature preferences. And certainly, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've talked to couples and the husband will say, uh, I have a fan by my side of the bed, which keeps me cool. And often, you know, in Germany, you know, you have separate duvets, um, which I think is a is a really, really good idea. Mm, yeah. Uh, try and make, again, we've touched on this, the bedroom, this haven for sleep. It's so difficult because so many bedrooms during lockdown became offices. And, you know, you need to get the computers, the televisions, all of that out so, you know, if, if you are using it as an office, then have it on a trolley. Just get it out of the room. And so mm. you go there and it's my space for relaxation uh, and sleep. One thing that some people become fixated on is clock watching. So you have an illuminated dial by the bed. So you, you may wake up and you may be sort of drowsy. 
you'll see the time, you think, oh my goodness, it's two hours before the alarm clock goes off. And actually it, it can be very alerting. And it, that, in fact, it doesn't matter. So I, I either get a different sort of alarm clock um, or cover the dial, which I think is, is, is useful. We talked about not taking sleep apps seriously. Uh, we've talked about keeping to a routine, both on free days and work days. Invest. I think we Brits are a bit a bit mean when it comes to mattresses and pillows, and and I think it's worth really investing in that you know you know, that wonderful feeling of sort of leaning back into goose down you know pillows. Yeah. It is a very lovely feeling rather than and I, I think it's worth worth spending the money after all a third of our lives will be spent in bed so you know mm. we should we should probably make sure that that's a decent experience um mm. we've talked about defining the sleeping space i think with specific smells and interestingly enough i know some people uh if they travel a lot they will take that smell with them in the and so the hotel room mm -hmm. they'll try and actually you know again think right to reinforce that and sometimes it's it's a partner's perfume or or, or, or aftershave that that can be mm. useful uh, again it's it's familiarity it's 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 sort of re relaxing now I think a very important one which we haven't touched on is what happens if your partner snores and we, this you, is you took the words right out of my mouth yeah are we okay <laughs> to smother them with a pillow would you recommend it <laughs> so you know of course there's three issues one is make sure that they don't have obstructive sleep apnea which is essentially where the musculature of the throat relaxes and it actually blocks the airway and so they stop breathing their brain detects they're not, they're being deprived of oxygen and it wakes them up, you know, coughing and spluttering and, you know, this huge, great snoring. And so that's dangerous um, because it produces a huge surge in blood pressure. It can damage the small vasculature of the eye and the brain. And, mm. and it's been associated with coronary heart disease and all the rest of it. So that can be fixed easily. Go to the GP and it's a thing called CPAP, which is, you know, a mask which pushes air into the into the airway and, and can almost resolve obstructive sleep apnea. And in fact, you know, people have told me that they've tried the jaw displacement things, which brings the jaw out, you know, the gum thing. Uh, yeah. That didn't work for them. And the uh, CPAP does. I think for about 90% of people, it does work. So it's fixable. If you can't stand earplugs, then um, what do you do? Well, I think you find an alternative sleeping space. And many people who's, you know, have said, oh no, I've been sleeping with the same person for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, or whatever it is. I think it's the beginning of the end of a relationship. It is not. The fact that you're getting a decent night's sleep in another place means you'll be happier, more empathetic. Um, you'll have a greater sense of humor. You'll be more creative. You'll be uh, more empathetic. And I think actually mm. it could be the start of a, a refreshed relationship. And so don't be afraid to find an alternative sleeping space. And I think so many people are. Yeah, snoring is a big issue. Uh, make sure that your partner doesn't have a health issue, as in obstructive sleep apnea. If earplugs don't work, then find somewhere else to sleep if you can it's it's tricky i mean there are other things you could encourage your partner to do which is not to sleep on their back which can make the mm -hmm. thing worse there's things like putting a, a tennis ball uh stitching it to the to their back so they can't lie back it is a very serious issue um yeah. and uh, many people find it very distressing mm -hmm. and i suppose the final thing which we've touched on if you wake stay calm mm. you will get back to sleep again 
Yeah. The key thing is you define what works for you and then you stick to it. And it may be, you know, like like yourself and having that glass of warm milk before you go to bed or whatever. It, it It's fine if it works. Yeah. Amazing advice. Thank you so much. I've got one final question and it's the question that I ask every guest at the end of the episode and that's to set the listeners some homework based on the theme of the episode. And you've just covered so many amazing pointers and advice uh, just now, but I guess I'll ask for what is a simple, actionable first step that we can take when it comes to improving our body's circadian rhythms that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? So if we could if we could only manage to do one, which one would it be? I think it's more of a, a philosophical point, which is okay. define what works for you. Because in a sense, there are many, and, and I think that's the good thing, because uh, Many people think sleep is what you get. No, you have an awful lot of control over it. So find out what works for you. Define how much sleep you need, what's your sleep preference, and then try a whole range of approaches which work for you. And don't be deflected from that path. So, you know, it's it's such a, an important thing to appreciate that sleep is dynamic, changeable, and it will change with age too. Many elderly people say, I've, I've had never, I wish I could have, the sleep that I had when I was 30. Others say, ah, oh, you have no idea. It's, I get the best sleep ever. Um, I don't have to worry about the kids. I don't have to worry about work. And, you know, my family are firmly told not to ring before 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, that's fine. But there is a bit of a stigma about this. Um, my dear old mum, uh, you know, she, she got great sleep later in life. And she recounted the story that um, uh, her neighbour had noticed what time the curtains were being pulled back in the morning and spoke to her and said, oh, you're right, you know, you're sleeping in. It was almost as though, you know, sleeping in was a bad thing. And right. so the response by my dear old mum was to uh, move to the back bedroom so the neighbours couldn't see when her curtains were being <laughs> opened. Wow. Which I thought was great fun. Maybe a little bit of a nosy neighbour there. That's yeah, it's a bit of a nosy neighbour there, yeah. <laughs> Oh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And for, for plenty more, that your book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and health is uh, available. And you, tomorrow, actually, it's the year, as we record this, it's the year anniversary of the release. I know it's been it's been so brilliant. The feedback has been extraordinary. I mean, really wonderful, mm. and uh, and I sort of very much appreciate the feedback I've, I've had. And Gabby, it's been great chatting to you. I've enjoyed it enormously. Oh, thank you again to Professor Russell Foster, and thank you to you for listening to this episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. And finally, friends, it's time for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening, not on the app, but on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, which is me, and the interviewees. The content of this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The Priory Healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe and leave a review if you found this episode helpful, please. And to find and follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. Please do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. <laughs>